Today we're going to be uh, looking at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's found on page 1692. And you may want to keep your Bibles open as we go along because I'll be uh, reading parts of Acts 2 uh, as we go along through the message. So Acts uh, chapter 2, it's found on page 1692. We prayed just now that the, the breath of God would come upon us We pray that because of what we read in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites... Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Many Christians associate uh, the word Pentecost with that group of Christians called Pentecostals. We think it has something to do with a somewhat wild form of Christian religious experience, maybe comprised of uh, arm-waving and speaking in tongues. Nothing could be further from the truth. All Christians, not just Pentecostals, derive meaning from the first Pentecost. Pentecost was observed the 50th day after Passover. It was a Jewish agricultural festival. Farmers brought the first sheaf of wheat as an offering to signal their gratitude to God and to pray that the rest of their crop would be safely gathered in. But there was something deeper going on. Like all the other Jewish festivals, Pentecost echoed the great story of the Jewish people. That great story was the exodus from Egypt. The story of God fulfilling his promises to Abraham by rescuing his people. The feast of Passover observed the time when lambs were sacrificed. The Israelites were saved from the avenging angel of God who slew the firstborn. And the people of Israel began their trek toward the promised land. Passover recalls the passing through the Red Sea. Pentecost isn't just about first fruits. Fifty days after Passover was the time when Israel was at Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law of God where he was on the top of the mountain. God gave his redeemed people a way of life by which they could live and carry out his purposes. Now, when we look at the early verses of Acts 2, Luke wants us to recognize a new harvest. 
Those who are filled with the Spirit and bear witness to Jesus in His resurrection are the first fruits of a great harvest that is to come. At Mount Sinai, 50 days after the Passover, Moses went up the mountain And when he came down, he presented the people with the law. Here, in the book of Acts, Luke wants us to see that Jesus has ascended. He's gone up into heaven. And he comes down again, not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the Spirit, this dynamic energy of the law meant to be written on human hearts so that they could fulfill God's purposes. Pentecost is a moment when the creative power of God moves from heaven to earth. The spirit of Jesus doesn't just fill us with a a spirituality that means means to make the things of this earth somehow irrelevant. No, no, no. By his spirit, suddenly the earth is transformed by the power of heaven. Jesus, just as Jesus brings the first part of earth to heaven... With his ascension, the Spirit now energizes God's people with the power of heaven on earth. So by the Spirit, we can call on Jesus, follow Jesus, trust Jesus to work something in and new that's in us and works through us. In a way, Peter's sermon now echoes what Jesus said when his ministry began. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's continue reading with verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The time has come. Peter tells us that the promise made by the prophet Joel hundreds of years earlier has now happened. The people don't have to live anymore with wispy hopes of what might be. The promise has come true. God has lavishly showered the world with his spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter is saying that now is the time of the last days. Right here in Jerusalem in the first century, God gives birth to the last days by pouring out his spirit. Now, the last days was a general term used in the Bible for the time that was to come. The last days were the time when God's promises would be fulfilled. The last days were the time when God's story would reach its climax. The last days were a time when God's people would arrive at a destination. Now, note, the last days are not the last day. That is, the last days are not the time of Jesus' return. They were not the day of the Lord. They were a time for new beginnings. 
Not the ending of all things. The last days were a time of new creation. So Peter uses this prophecy from Joel to explain the otherwise bizarre behavior of the apostles. He connects their actions on Pentecost with Joel's prophecy about God pouring out his spirit, that God is acting in a new way. See, up to this time, God would inspire his people here and there. When we read the Old Testament, we find that kings and prophets, priests and righteous men or women, they would receive God's spirit but only and always for a limited time. But here, on Pentecost, God releases His Spirit on everyone for always. Uh, A lot of people all at once receive God's Spirit, and it's without discrimination, says the prophecy of Joel. Slaves and free, male and female, young and old, all are now marked by the Spirit. The roar of the wind, the flames over each person's head, they represent this untamable force of God's Spirit. And the story describes something new, not something redone, not something renovated. Acts gives us a picture of something brand new. See, Pentecost is not some kind of cosmetic makeover. I mean, you can do that. You could spend hours sanding, priming, painting your old and worn kitchen cupboards. And when you're done, it would look like you have a new kitchen. But you know that's not true because you know that underneath the paint there are still some scratches and dings and dents. They're the same cupboards, only cosmetically altered. Uh, That's not the way the Spirit works. When the Spirit is poured out into us, things become new. When God's Spirit is poured out, it's like the first days of creation. As someone noted, it's like what happened in Peter's life. In Genesis 2-7, the Spirit of God breathed life into dust and created a human being. In Acts 2, verses 1-4, to the Spirit breathed life into a once cowardly disciple and created a new man who now has the gift of bold speech. When God poured out the Spirit, the last days were launched, not to bring an end to all things, but to bring this world to a new beginning. The Spirit poured out on God's people brings us into a new creation. By the Spirit, we can be God's new people. All possible because of Jesus. Peter continues, People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. 
that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter points us toward the the power that's behind this Pentecost moment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Peter continues his Pentecost manage by explaining the meaning behind Jesus' ministry, his death, his resurrection and ascension. Jesus is the person who fulfills God's Old Testament promise. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's only one reason why the last days are here. Jesus' resurrection. The last days are about more than the mighty wind or tongues of fire or hearing the wonders of God in their own language. These last days are a direct result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection isn't some bizarre display of power. God didn't raise Jesus just to show us the immense power of God. Jesus' resurrection fulfills God's promise made to King David a long time before this. Peter quotes from Psalm 16 to speak of the one who will not be abandoned to death, but will come through death and out the other side. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You've made known to me the paths of life. Resurrection is not some disembodied spirit going off to heaven. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright notes, Resurrection was and is about a physical body being very thoroughly dead, but then being very thoroughly alive again, so that the normal corruption and decay which follows death wouldn't even begin. And this all matters because what what Peter's trying to show us is that Jesus is the rightful king. He is the one in the line of David. Now for the people of Peter's day, that's a stretch. We may not have any problem with that. We may have long considered Jesus to be the rightful king. But Peter is very much aware that many of his contemporaries would see Jesus' death as profoundly shameful. See, Jesus' death on a cross is the height of shame. He was a criminal, subjected to execution. And not just any execution. Jesus was degraded by being hung on a cross. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. People of Jesus' day would have thought of him as cursed because he was crucified. But Peter sees something different and wants to teach them that difference. The wickedness and evil that brought Jesus to the cross, Peter sees not as a shameful death. No, he says, do you see it's part of God's rescue plan all along? Rome had this highly praised system of justice. But Jesus' death reveals how rotten their system is. Pilate willingly killed an innocent man. 
And the temple was the centerpiece of Israel's spiritual life. But Jesus' death reveals how hollow their temple religion really was. These religious leaders willingly gave Jesus over to the pagans, knowing the excruciating death he would receive. So both of these institutions had this accumulation of evil. And in one great act of violence, they delivered it upon the person who did nothing to deserve such violence. An innocent man was crucified. This is why Peter can say that all along, the cross was integral to God's plan for rescue. An innocent human had to die for human sin. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But the same Jesus who died this shameful death, but an unwarranted death, was restored from this shameful ruin because God raised him from the dead. God never justifies the evil against Jesus. Instead, he vindicates Jesus by raising him to life. And that's victory. The kingdom has come. Jesus, who was crucified, is the Lord and Messiah. God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. And the coming of the Spirit is proof of all of this. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The Spirit is the sign of Christ's victory. This past week, many nations celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day won the war in Europe. Oh, yeah, there was terrible fighting and struggle yet to come. The Battle of the Bulge was after. The firebombing of Dresden was after. Liberating the death camps was after. Berlin was still a long way off. But the war in Europe after D-Day was basically mop-up operations. Because D-Day struck a death blow to Hitler's plans for domination. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished redemption for the whole creation. Jesus won the victory over death and evil on Calvary and through an empty garden tomb. Oh, there's still terrible fighting and struggle yet to come. We each face each day temptations, hardships, challenges, That must be overcome. Some days, that day of Jesus' return feels like it's a long way off. But the war with evil over Jesus' death and resurrection is basically just mop-up operation. Because Jesus struck a death blow to Satan's plans for world domination. And we know all of this. We're aware of all of this because the Spirit is present to us. And removes all doubt. Here's the good news, says Peter. Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. The testimony in us that victory is won. He began this new creation moment. Caesar's not Lord. The temple doesn't reign. Jesus is Lord. And so Peter can say, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And it calls for only one kind of response. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers and sisters, what, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's only one way to respond. Repent and believe the good news. When the crowd heard Jesus declared as Messiah and Lord, they were struck by the truth of Jesus. And they cried out, What shall we do? And Peter is clear. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. To repent is to turn back. Peter directs them toward the kingdom, toward that movement identified with Jesus. He points them toward joining the people who claim that Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, is the center of their lives. Turn away from life with you at the center. Turn towards Jesus. Make his life your way of life. Repentance is doing this about face. It's moving away from self-centeredness and self-indulgence of trying to gain all you can for yourself and moving toward Jesus and giving all you can to him. Theologian Emil Bruner once offered up an image of a spider's web. He noted that our world places us at the center of the web. We sit amid a world filled with a spirit of getting all we can for ourselves. Our world teaches us to ask, what's in it for me? Peter says in verse 40 that a corrupt generation wants to capture you in its web. Bruner looks at the forces of life where we want what others have, happiness, possessions, honor, power. We want love, respect, time, sympathy, all many good things, but they're corrupted by our orientation. Bruner says our ego sits like a king enthroned and demands that the world serve it. Repentance is a revolution. Instead of ourselves at the center on the throne, we place Christ at the center of our lives, the one who is on the throne. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, says Peter. It might be better to say, let God rescue you, because we can't save ourselves. We must get caught in the web of what God is doing. God is at work in the world. Salvation belongs to God. Salvation is God's doing. As one person notes, the entire point of Pentecost is that God will accomplish His purposes through us. Not because we're powerful in ourselves, but because He will show His power through us. And the best way for us to be rescued in God's power is to place ourselves in that community in which God and God's Spirit is at work. A community that turned from self at the center to Jesus at the center. A community of people that takes Jesus seriously and lives out the good news. It looks like this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early believers lived in the reality of God's kingdom in their new community. The, the early church was a place where heaven and earth were joined together by God's love. And they were marked by four devotions. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They sought to be straight about Jesus' expectations for who they were and who they needed to be. And they were committed to a lifelong Christian learning. A learning that reset their mindset in which they resisted the mindset of the culture that was around them, and they made Jesus' teaching the center of their lives. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were knit together in a nobody-gets-left-outside, spirit-powered community, where goods and lives were freely shared. Their common life sustained a deep-hearted faith. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This was more than potluck suppers. They shared the simple meal of bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus, to help them remember that the center of everything was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they devoted themselves to prayer. They didn't pray to get what they wanted. They prayed to remind themselves that they were heaven and earth people. Just as Jesus had taught them, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in our lives, in this place, as it is in heaven. They were a spirit-empowered force loving God and loving each other so that they could bless the world. There was a theology professor at Wheaton College named Dr. Gilbert Bilizikian. Many affectionately referred to him as Dr. B. And every so often, Dr. B would end his class by putting his notes aside and talking about Acts 2. He would tell his students of a time when the Holy Spirit moved among a community of people who were unreservedly devoted to God and irrationally committed to each other. Barriers came down. Men and women were like brothers and sisters. Jews and Gentiles who always had hated each other were like members of the same family. Slaves and free people treated each other as equals. Rich people shared freely and openly with any poor person who had need. Nobody clutched anything, everybody, not just those who were installed in office, not just those who were shamed into volunteering, not the 20% who did 80%. No, everyone put a towel over their arm and became a servant to and among the community. And masks were removed. They confessed their sins. 
Not to manage their image, not because of some order in the liturgy. No, they repented where they had hurt God and each other. And they forgave each other. They forgave whatever offenses had been committed. And the Spirit-empowered community wasn't just a once-a-week worshiping body. They lived and breathed and moved in every part of life as Jesus wanted. And people from outside this community would see their lives and say, I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. And then Dr. B would look at his class and say, It happened once before. Why can't it happen again? Has the Spirit lost its power? And then he would issue this challenge. Some of you should devote your life to building this kind of kingdom community on earth. Some of you ought to give up whatever you're pursuing and give everything to pursue this God-envisioned community. So what about us? What does God want to do here? Where is the Spirit of God blowing at Emmanuel Church? What new creation does God's Spirit want to do in and through us? I mean, there's no doubt the Spirit has something in mind for us because there's passion in this body, in this church. There are gifts of the Spirit evident in all of you that could overwhelm the people of Ripon with God's love. So what about you? Peter tells us that these are the last days. That God has acted in a new way by His Spirit in order to bring life. Life in Jesus' name. God's promise is realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God's promise comes into our lives by the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost. It's a D-Day moment. The question is, will we engage in the mopping up that needs to overcome evil's death throes? What about you? Will you take the power of the Spirit that God has poured into your life and devoted to building God's kind of community? It might mean taking your stuff, stuff that makes you feel secure and comfortable, and giving it away to someone in need. It might mean taking the risky step of talking to a person you don't see eye to eye with and trying to work out your differences. It might mean confessing before the Holy Spirit that you've placed yourself at the center of it all. I mean, you may not know what the specifics look like, but you can say, God, God, between now and the day my life ends, I will give my life to what you want. Somebody ought to do this. Somebody ought to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and devote their life to building God's kind of kingdom community on earth? What about you? Let's pray.
Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Make us into the community that you desire us to be. Mold our hearts to be willing. Move our minds, our hands, our feet into arenas where you are hard at work. Teach us. Teach us how to be like Jesus so that we in love are always attracting others. Spirit of the living God, come. Come to us. Abide in us. Bring us the breath of life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.